Find out which guests are being featured this week. Read our network press releases and read the blog posts from your favorite hosts. Go to iradioblog.com today. Powered by the Voice America Talk Radio Network. The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. This is the Ellis Martin Report. You'll hear expert insight, commentary, and potential financial opportunity. We want you to know up front, eyes wide open, companies featured on this program have given us cash money to be portrayed here. On the web, find us at ellismartinreport.com. Here's the host of the Ellis Martin Report, Ellis Martin. Join me now for an impromptu, spur-of-the-moment interview with the silver guru, David Morgan. His website is silver-investor.com or themorganreport.com. David, welcome back to the program. Oh, it's good to be with you. I feel as if I have zero say in how our tax dollars are being overspent to pay for who knows what, and it's consistent and more aggressive even during these trying economic times. I received an email today from you asking us to sign a petition. Well, it's not my petition. What happened was, you know, being rather prominent, I guess you could say, on the Internet in the precious metal space, obviously silver particularly, I get approached fairly regularly. And this one gentleman got a hold of me that he had started a petition, and this was involving some legislation that he wanted changed. His legislation, that his bill, proposed bill, that he wanted to get enough petitions signed where he could actually put it on the ballot in North Dakota was that the legislator had to read the bill before they voted on the bill. Now, just saying that just sends a chill down my spine because when we elect officials to represent us, which is the way it's supposed to be, or at least that's what we're told or we're taught, these people you would take for granted would read the bills before they vote on them, but that's not the case at all. In most cases, they don't read them at all. And so that was the crux of this, I read what he had done, and I watched the DVD. He sent it to me, priority mail. I dropped what I was doing. It was two days ago. Watched the whole thing. Really got me more fired up watching the DVD than what I had already maintained over the phone conversation. And I decided to help him out and learned a great deal in the process. Now, he spent a great deal of his own time, money, and energy throughout North Dakota, and he needed 15,000 signatures in order to move this petition to have it put on the ballot in North Dakota. He only received 2,000 signatures. So he was like seven times as many to go in order to actually even get this thing placed on the ballot. But he learned a great deal. And in that process, he's contacting people such as myself that are willing to help the cause. But again, I just have to say it one more time. Where have we gone where we have to put a, a measure into the legislature that demands they read the laws that they're voting on. I mean, this is like a science fiction or a comic book situation. Oh, no, we don't read them. We just vote on them. I mean, it's ridiculous, and yet that is exactly the case. Now, I read something recently that illustrated the concept that these bills are purposely written in great misguided depth, voluminously thick, in order that they're impossible to read. They're not supposed to be read. They're just supposed to get passed. They're never going to be read. Most members of Congress don't read them. Bills are just getting passed by rote. 
Where's our voice, David? Well, that's the point, one of the many points. Exactly right. This documentary does a great job of explaining most of these bills are written by lobbyists that have very much vested interest, special interests as they're commonly referred to. They write the legislation and they pass it along to their hand-picked Congress critter of choice, and they put the bill into the House of Representatives, and then it's voted on. What they also showed in this documentary, which I actually didn't know, although it didn't shock me when I saw it, was when these votes are taking place, they vote electronically by pressing a button on their desk, and that legislators will push the buttons of other House members that either are absent or not at their desk at the precise time. For an example, I forget whom it was, but it's, again, in the DVD. One of the Congress critters was pressed his button, turned around, and the guy behind him didn't have a chance to press the button before he voted for him. I mean, this is absolutely, again, absurd. It's, it's beyond ridiculous. And yet, these are people that are spending money we don't have for causes we don't want and doing it without even knowledge of what laws they're passing. I mean, again, words don't, you know, leave me. I, I don't have anything, I can't express it strongly enough of how upsetting this really is when you think about what has gone on and what has happened to uh, a nation that was set on a fundamental principle that was basically very simple. And the fact that we're all created equal didn't mean that we're all created equal in the sense that we could all play NFL football, or that we're all created equal in the fact that we're all could be an Einstein. But we're all created equal in the eyes of the law. That's what separates a republic from a democracy. We all have the same legal rights guaranteed by the legislator, guaranteed primarily by our creator, and secured by the founding documents. It's gotten so convoluted, it's become laughable, although it's not a, in the least bit funny. Where's the fairness here? There isn't any. The fairness is gone. The sanctity of law is gone. The special interests are running the show. There's so much legislation out there and so much more that gets passed every year that no one can really make sense of it. Unfortunately, it's going to take something nearly catastrophic to bring it back into some semblance of sanity. Point being that the economic situation is untenable. And that alone is something that resonates with everybody. Everybody buys food. Everybody drinks water. Everybody seek shelter, and when those things start moving away from you or your ability to pay for them, everyone gets a wake-up call. And that's the direction that we're headed, and I think we're going to continue. And then these questions will be asked. I'm not sure the right questions will be asked. I'm not sure the right people will be blamed. But at least there'll be some waking-up period that will take place. And when things fall apart, they don't come back together very easily. Well, you know what the answer is, don't you? Spread the wealth. <laughs> yeah, right. Oh, they print it all up and drop it from helicopters equally to everyone. And then we'll all be rich and it won't matter. If it's indeed all about money, where's the money going to come from to pay for all of this? That's, as you know, Ellis, what deficit spending is all about. The deficit means that all the tax revenues that are collected do not cover the ex expenditures of the government. And to make up the difference, they have to borrow it. And that's been going on for, again, a very long time. And it will continue. I mean, right now they could tax everybody at 100%, and I don't think it would make a difference. We're mathematically at a point where it's impossible to get this thing under control. And so therefore, logic tells us it's out of control. It's not going to end well. How does a petition help? Where are the freedom fighters? Well, I think, one, you have to stay somewhat optimistic and realistic. To just get them to have to read the bill under penalty of perjury would slow down the legislative process a great deal. And 
I think that's a good thing. I mean, basically something that's classic and elegant is usually simple. You don't need a bunch of rhetoric to make a law, to pass a law. I mean, you don't need these tons and tons of paper, pages upon pages, as you suggested, were extremely convoluted and very difficult to understand and deliberately written that way because there are some special interests that pen this thing over you know, a six-month time frame and was rushed through Congress in a six-minute time frame and no one read it. So I think slowing down the Congress clears would be something that would be advantageous to everybody. There's enough laws on the books, really. I'm not saying that there aren't any that shouldn't be passed. I think most new legislation should go into basically undo the mess that they've created, get things back to a very simple, understandable state. And that could happen. In fact, I'm fairly optimistic that it will happen, but it won't happen, in my view, until things have gotten to a point where they don't have a choice. In other words, the economic conditions require that things get very much simplified. Does the natural ebb and flow of all this break down to action at the state level? I think it is, and I think that's what we're seeing. If you look uh, again at my specialty in the precious metals, what you're seeing is more and more states that are saying, you know, we want to have gold and silver as uh, a currency that can be used in the payment of debt at the state level, and that state's rights being enacted I believe that's where it belongs. I believe that there's a trend there. I think it's going to accelerate. And I really think that will help solve the problem. I mean, basically, the federal government in the founding idea was that it was a very small area that had mandate not over the states. The states were superior to the federal government, but they did have purview combining the states into a federation for purposes that were important, such as a military force or actually gathering the militia on a nation-state basis if it were required to do so. But they had very limited power. In fact, they had such limited power that the federal government was given a district, not a state. A state is superior to a district. And yet the District of Criminals, I mean, Columbia, was put together, and now, of course, the federal government, through various methodologies, have pretty much usurped the state's power, although the states are fighting back. But at law, the states are superior to the district. So actually, if we can get back to a natural decentralization, we're going to be what our founding fathers meant us to be. Pretty much. The idea was that states could pretty much decide how they wanted to do business. If a state, as an example, felt that prostitution should be legal, such as most of Nevada, people that were in favor of that could move to that state. And people that really didn't want anything to do with that type of thing would not be in Nevada. If you had a state that was favorable to gambling, for an example, and again, Nevada would come to mind, let's say a certain methodology doing something, it would attract certain people and not others. But it was the idea that the individual had the right to go where they wanted to. So the states had the power to provide for the citizenry of their state what they deemed appropriate. And, of course, it was really, in the true sense, voted on by the people. In other words, it was the people's will. And yet, of course, we've come a long, long ways from that over the last you know, many decades. So we, the people, don't really get a chance to vote on our own personal destiny when we go to the ballot box. We're just selecting individuals, for the most part, that are being lobbied. Now, that's what's pointed out, again, in this documentary, that a lot of freshmen congressmen come in with a great deal of enthusiasm and very idealistic only to learn the truth that there's 300 lobbyists following every one of them around, constantly bending their ear, and they learn if you're going to get anything done, you're going to have to listen to the lobbyists. How can we find this documentary? Well, I put it out for our you know, broad list, the basic free list that I, I maintain for everybody's benefit. There is a URL on there that you can click and, and 
buy the uh, DVD, just send an uh, email to support at silver-investor.com. Again, that's support at silver-investor.com. And say you want the Fools on the Hill. That's Fools, F-O-O-L-S, on the Hill. It's all about how foolish the uh, Congress critters are. And we'll send you the information on the DVD. Tell us about the Morgan Report. Well, I just mentioned we do have a free email for everybody's benefit. Above that and beyond that, there's a member section, which is a paid service, which helps you make money in money, mining the metals. There's a basic service for $130 a year, and there's a two services above that. One is I uh, show you the trades that I'm putting on and off and go into the, a lot of the videos. We produce videos of different companies, interviews, that type of thing that we put in the members-only section. And then there's an advanced service for basically fund managers or high net worth individuals. All of those are explained in greater depth on the website by a video presentation. David, as always, it's been a bit of a history lesson and an economic lesson. Thanks for joining us today on the Ellis Martin Report. My pleasure. Thank you. David Morgan's website is arrived at by typing in silver-investor.com. We offer expert opinions only. Find them on our website ellismartinreport.com that's ellismartinreport.com would you like to hear all of that again go to the podcast page of our website that's ellismartinreport.com ellismartinreport.com otherwise known as ellismartinreport.com Free Minerals trades on the Venture Exchange under the symbol CMA.V and in the U.S. on the over-the-counter bulletin board as CRMXF. Michael O'Connor, President of Cream Minerals, thanks for joining me today on the Ellis Martin Report. My pleasure, Ellis. Thank you. What's come up with regard to your Nuevo Millennio project? We issued a news release, and in that news release, there were four drill holes from Ansibocas North, which is a potential open pit target on the uh, floor of the caldera. Of the four holes, the hole 9 missed the zone, which happens in exploration drilling. However, holes 10, 11, and 12 did hit the zone. All of the holes returned good values, and the best value was 68 grams per ton silver and 0.4 grams per ton gold over an intercept of 22 meters. Contained within that intercept and also contained with the intercept on the other two drill holes, 11 and 12, were higher grade intercepts of roughly 2 meters running 150 grams per ton silver and roughly 0.7 grams to 0.8 grams per ton gold. Quite good results. I'm very happy with them. When you take those within the context of a uh, open pit potential, it becomes really very interesting. Well, you've got high grades of silver at surface. You're most definitely increasing the resource. Will this specifically define the company as an open pit resource project? I think it's a little bit too early to, to say that it's going to be strictly an open pit project. You know, we do have very good grades in the quartz veins and the quartz stockwork contained in the eastern wall of the caldera. The prime determinant will be total ounces contained in the east wall of the caldera. Are there sufficient ounces there? And are the locations of the quartz veins with respect to each other amenable to underground mining? If that works out, then yes, we could have an underground uh, mining operation. Most certainly at this stage, it looks like we will have open pit operations on the floor of the caldera. Your market cap expands naturally due to the growing price of silver. We've had several people come on the program and predict that it's going to hit 50 or $60 announced by the end of the year. That's correct. I mean, currently our market cap is roughly $35, $37 million. This stock is trading approximately $0.27, $0.28 cents Canadian. There are 153 million shares out, so let's assume that silver rallies strongly, the share price rallies strongly, hits a dollar. 
then our market cap is $153 million. So that should directly affect the share price of your company as well. Any junior exploration company which has got a, an in-situ resource and which is working on developing or expanding that in-situ resource can be viewed as, as a long-term call on the price of silver. So as the price of silver goes up, the price of the silver in the ground or the value of the silver in the ground is going to go up. So therefore, the net present value on a fully diluted basis is going to go up. Therefore, the share price sooner or later is going to have to respond to the increase in the net present value of the underlying the share price. Well, the open pit means that it's actually going to be a lot cheaper to produce an ounce of silver and uh, additionally create that sort of value for your shareholders. That's correct. It's going to be much cheaper to produce an ounce of silver. It's also going to be much easier to produce an ounce of gold. Typically in the open pit areas, we're seeing about 0.4 to 0.7 grams per ton gold, which is a nice credit to have because generally it will pay for all your mining and milling costs. In addition, if you're looking at an open pit operation, your capital investment is going to be dramatically lower than if you're looking at at an underground mining operation, simply because you're spared the expense of drilling the tunnels, the drifts, the adits, etc. That can be incredibly expensive. And of course, there's plenty of infrastructure in Nayarit State, Mexico. We're within, let's say, 14 kilometers from the airport, 14 kilometers from power, we're roughly 14 kilometers from water. There's a railway that is, I'd say, 8 kilometers from the entrance to the property, and we're 27 kilometers by road from Topeka, the capital of Nayarit State. So with respect to proximity and infrastructure, it's very favorable for the uh, development of the project because the capital investment required, or the infrastructure capital investment required, is actually going to be quite low compared to some other projects I've seen. Who are some of the analysts that have covered you lately? Starting with Northern Securities, Matthew Zalestra. He has a speculative buy rating on the stock with a one-year target of 47 cents. Uh, He issued his initial coverage in late December of 2011. Mike Bandrowski, mining analyst with Clara Securities, is currently issuing morning notes. Brian Zitzo with Byron Securities has a speculative buy. He currently doesn't have a uh, a one-year price target. However, he has said that in subsequent research publications, he will have a uh, a one-year price target. And most recently, Dundee Securities included cream in their summary of junior silver exploration companies uh, for 2012. Michael O'Connor, president of Cream Minerals, trading on the Venture Exchange under the symbol CMA.V and the -the over-the-counter bulletin board as CRMXF. It's been a pleasure speaking with you today. Thank you, Alice. It's my pleasure. Hey, it's me, Cool Voice Guy. You should be feeling the effects of brain growth by now. Take a moment and relax. You can always catch up online at our website, ellismartinreport.com. That's ellismartinreport.com. If you listen to all the programs there, your mind will be saturated with money juice. That's what I call it. That's ellismartinreport.com. I'm Ellis Martin. In this segment, I'm visiting with Dr. Don Robinson, president of East Main Resources, trading on the TSX under the symbol ER. East Main is an active explorer in eastern Canada with an ongoing partnership with major gold producer Goldcorp. Fifty percent of this year's drilling will be focused on increasing the size of high-grade measured and indicated gold resources in the 450 and 850 west zones of East Main's Eau Claire project, which may be amenable to extraction by open pit methods. I'm a shareholder of the company and East Main is a paid sponsor of the Ellis Martin Report. Don, welcome back to the program. Good afternoon, Ellis. It's always a pleasure. 
You put out a news release last week outlining a 40,000-meter drill program underway at your Eau Claire project in Quebec. Yes, well, we will have a substantial program on our Clearwater project. Fundamental objective is expand the Eau Claire size of the open pit first and foremost and underground uh, after that. You already have a sizable resource. Is it your intention to define all of the property that's under your domain? Well, our intention is to demonstrate that we have a standalone deposit that could support its own operation. That's not necessarily our business plan to build the operation ourselves, but it's our plan to explore it, drill it, and expand it to demonstrate that to the market. East Main has performed fairly well in the trying market. Overall, we have slightly outperformed the emerging producers and our explorer peer group. We're not happy about it. I don't think any of the explorers or the emerging producers are happy about it, but we have been able to sort of stay in the pack or a little bit ahead of the pack. And the reason being is that we have a project that when you look at all of the major gold projects around the world, there are 329 of them that are greater than 1 million ounces. And of those, there's 163 of them that aren't in production. If we look at a few more criteria, if you look at projects that have greater than 1.5 million ounces and greater than 3 grams, there's only 13 of them in North America, and we are one of the 13. This is why we think, you know, we've got something on our hands that's significant and compelling. And you're in an area with quite a bit of infrastructure and support from the provincial government. And that's exactly the next component that you know has to be looked at. Do you have to build a 500-kilometer-long power line or access route to it? No, we don't. We are right beside a permanent road, and we're right beside some of the cheapest power in the world. So the other component that goes with it is that the project uh, has relatively simple metallurgy through high gravity and flotation recoveries. So there's not any technical obstacles that we see that would prevent this project from moving along. Our next and fundamental objective is can you push it into the next tier in terms of size? And we have made a significant impact on the project last year, expanding the project by about 550 meters to the west. That will be incorporated into a new resource update coming down the pipeline. But in the meantime, we are drilling as we speak the north edge of the known resource. We've got six or seven holes into it. We've hit a new swarm of veins. One of the veins, we've seen visible gold into it, which is a telltale to say that, yes, Some of these at least will be gold-bearing, and hopefully it'll make a significant impact on the resource that we have already. Now, it's not your intention, and you've stated this several times, to bring Eau Claire into production yourself. You're going through the process and succeeding in making it very attractive as a possible takeout project for East Main. One of your large investors and joint venture partners is Goldcorp. Goldcorp and other companies are courting you, are they not? I think all of them have their eyes and ears on all of the advanced projects that are active out there. Ours is one of them, that's for sure. Gold Corp have got their hands full developing their LNR project. It looks like it's a quite attractive one, and it will bring more eyes to our district in terms of potential of a new area where the first large mine is about to start.
Speaking of your district, you have also stated that you feel it's comparable in Quebec to the Timmins Gold District in Ontario. And it's all based on geology, is that the geological terrain that we're dealing with, we call them greenstone belts, the rocks are green and they're ancient volcanoes, but they just happen to host a lot of metal, in particular some large gold deposits and base metal deposits. That's why we started there in the first place. That was the compelling reason of looking at analogs from projects in Timmins and Valdor and Red Lake And lo and behold, surprise, surprise, they're also being found in our district. And it's aided and abetted by the fact that the Quebec government's built a bunch of roads into the district through Hydro-Quebec, and they're planned north. They're building some more roads at the east end of the district, and that's what will dictate success with exploration going in the future. You've managed to keep a sizable cash reserve in an otherwise difficult market environment. We have been able to maintain a significant treasury, and in part, there's a Quebec advantage that there's rebates that come back from expenditures in the ground or positive tax derivative financing mechanisms that's allowed us to raise money at a substantial premium. But what allows us really to do these financings is that the market, despite its being a difficult for financing for many companies, if you have a project that's significant and has a chance of becoming a future operation, you're able to finance. You're going to be appearing at the heart of the theater district in Manhattan on May 14th and 15th for the Hard Assets Conference at the Marriott Marquis Hotel in Times Square. We have a sizable audience in that part of the country, and anyone that attends will have a chance to meet and speak with you, perhaps. Well, we hope that they come and see us at the Hard Assets Show. We will be also presenting outside of the show at your typical marketing efforts that need to go on despite what's going on in the marketplace. You've been more active in presenting the story than I've ever seen you in the past, Don. As busy as you are, what's driving you? There's a lot of long-term shareholders that want to see results. My partner will tell us that the best time to be marketing is when the markets are the worst. So we have a very full plate in terms of the program ahead of us, but we also intend to keep the marketing effort full on. Well, Don, as always, it's been a pleasure visiting with you again. Always a pleasure, Alice. I've been speaking with Dr. Don Robinson, president of Eastman Resources, trading on the TSX under the symbol ER. Join me now for a conversation with Eric Fear, the chief operating officer of Silvercrest Mines. Silvercrest Mines trades on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol SVL, now the OTCQX, as STBZF. Mr. Fear has over 25 years of international experience in a senior capacity, including exploration, acquisition, development, and production of numerous mining projects in Chile, Brazil, Honduras, Mexico, and Peru. He previously served as chief geologist with Pegasus Gold. He was a senior engineer and manager with Newmont Mining and project manager with Eldorado Gold Corp. Silvercrest Mines is a Mexican precious metals producer with headquarters based in Vancouver, B.C. Silvercrest flagship property is the 100% owned Santa Elena Mine, which is located 150 kilometers northeast of Hermosillo in the state of Sonora, Mexico. The mine is a high-grade epithermal gold and silver producer. A three-year expansion plan is underway to double metals production at the Santa Elena Mine, and exploration programs are rapidly advancing the definition of a large polymetallic deposit at the La Jolla property in Durango State, Mexico. Eric, welcome to the program. Great. Thanks for having us back on the air, Ellis. It's always an opportunity to get the story out. Well, you've got quite a story, and you've had quite a story for a significant amount of time. I'm just looking over your latest news release, and for quarter one of 2012, 
Silver production is up 108%, and gold ounces are up 198%. That's outstanding. Yeah, that's correct, Ellis. Part of it is that we're comparing the quarter of 2011 with the current quarter. In the quarter of 2011, we were in the ramp-up phase, so we weren't at full production. So that's part of the bump-up. The other part of the bump-up in having such a significant change in percent is that we're getting better recoveries, we're getting better throughput through our crusher at the mine site, and all of that wraps up into more ounces and more cash flow for the company. So you're saying a lot of it is about the tools? It's about the tools and, and the people. A lot of it rolls back to a lot of the planning, strategic planning. You know, you got to have smart people on the ground and boots on the ground to get this work done. I give a big hand to our, our production team that's in Mexico. Great people, great people to work with. The local people that we're using in Mexico are top-notch people. We've taken people that have been working out on, on the ranching side a year ago and trained them up, and they're doing an excellent job. It all means savings to us and uh, more cash flow and opportunities for our shareholders and potential shareholders. One of the things mining companies come across, especially if they're going into production or even the development stage or exploration stage, is finding the right personnel in the area. And you're saying that you're just training locals and putting them to work. I implemented a program before we started construction of 70% local hire local being within about 35 kilometers of the mine site. And we're at that now. So we actually got guys that are, are local guys that are at the foreman level, superintendent level, that are running the crushers, that are running the plant, that are working in the pit, and they really appreciate the job. It's a great opportunity for the community. we got great community support. One other thing that Santa Elena, which is our flagship for Silvercrest, uh, it's the flagship mine, is that it's a very attractive area. So you're close to Hermosillo, which has great infrastructure, an international airport, over a million people, and it's a very attractive place to work because the alternative is to work up in the Sahara Madre. You're on rotation. You don't get to see your families. So we get uh, quite a few people that are interested in coming to Santa Elena and work for us because of that. In addition to the production that you have going on and expanding that production capability, what about further exploration and stepping out the resource itself at Santa Elena? What's happening in that direction? we got a twofold plan for this year. One is to expand the resources at Santa Elena, and I'm shooting for a 50% to 100% increase in our underground resources. We've started up a drilling program, so look forward to those news releases coming up over the next several months. Beyond Santa Elena and expanding that resource, with success of expanding that resource, it adds mine life, adds more job security, adds more cash flow to the company and, and to its shareholders. Beyond Santa Elena, we uh, have a major discovery in the state of Durango. Keep in mind that Santa Elena is in the state of Sonora, so there's quite a bit of a distance between the, the two sites. So that major discovery is called La Jolla. We just did our first NI-43-101 resource in January, over 100 million ounces silver equivalent, about 60% of that silver, 30% copper, and 10% on the gold side. 
so there's great opportunities. We continue to drill there. We've got an 80-hole program that's underway, and we're shooting for a double on that resource toward the end of this year, too. We'll see if we're successful or not. The opportunity's there. It's a big system. It's a major discovery. Great opportunity for the company to grow in that direction. I would see Silvercrest in two to three years of being a mid-tier silver-gold producer and bringing, with success, bringing La Jolla online. Uh, you know, it's, it's five years out. You've got to get through all of your studies. But there is a, a conceptual business plan in place right now to look at the growth of the company. What kind of mine life are we looking at? Before the expansion plan, it was six years. The expansion plan at Santa Elena is adding another five years. So you're 10 to 11 years with success and getting 50% to 100% more resources underground. You're probably adding another two to three years on that life. So I think that Santa Elena, at the end of the day, with metal prices being where they're at, is a major project over the next 10 to 15 years. Well, you're generating revenue through production. Silver is being used as a speculative investment and as an industrial metal. We don't see the need for silver abating at all for the foreseeable future, whether it's the bullion itself or producing public company like yours. I agree with you. I mean, silver, 50% of it's used on the commodities side and 50% is industrial. So there is a balance there depending on global uh, economics and what's going on. But uh, we're very bullish on silver. Any plans beyond what we've discussed for the next two years? We're always looking at other projects. Uh, we're in a unique position right now, Ellis, that we do have a strong cash flow, although some of it's being put towards our expansion plan. We look at two to three acquisitions a month right now. I have an acquisitions team in Mexico. We love Mexico. We don't have any problems with the security there. There's great opportunities. I've previously worked in Nevada. Mexico is like Nevada 30 to 40 years ago. I mean, you can walk over, and we've just shown it. La Jolla a year ago had nothing, and one year later, it's a major discovery. So if I can go out in the field and walk over something and make a major discovery within the last year, you know that there's got to be tremendous opportunity, and we want to capture that opportunity. We don't want to overdo it because we do have a limited amount of people and a limited amount of funds, but you definitely don't want to pass up an opportunity, and we continue to look for those. So if you were to pick up another find or two, like Santa Elena or La Jolla over the next two years, you would not be displeased? Oh, no. No, it's it's all great growth for the company. And we're pretty lean and mean. I mean, our corporate office has eight people in it. We don't book out uh, penthouse suites and spend millions of dollars on our overhead uh, just to keep the upper management happy. So... Lean and mean, we got over 240 employees or contractors right now in Mexico, and that's a pretty tight team for the amount of work and accomplishment that we're doing right now. So to find uh, another one or two or bring into our stable another one or two uh, projects just means great growth for the company, uh, moving once again into a mid-tier silver-gold producer, and, and we have the management team and the qualifications to do that. Speaking of your management team, the man with a great vision, one of the founders of the company, CEO Scott Drever, has been a quiet and strong presence. Oh, definitely. And, and he will continue to be. I mean, Scott and I, we bat around business ideas every day. He's a great, stable force in moving this company forward. There was actually three of us founders, myself, Scott, and Barney Magnuson of Silvercrest. Beyond that uh, senior management level, there's 
uh, some great potential just below us. Brent McFarlane, Jed Thomas, uh, Salvador Aguayo. These are all VP positions that are critical to the growth of this company, and they got a lot of great experience and good people. Well, Eric, it's been a pleasure catching up with you. Thanks for joining me on the program, and thanks for the update. I look forward to speaking with you again. Okay, thank you uh, once again for the opportunity, Alice. I've been chatting with Eric Fear, Chief Operating Officer for Silvercrest Mines. Silvercrest trades on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol SVL and on the OTCQX as STVZF. Listen to this segment again on the podcast page of our website, ellismartinreport.com. For more information, visit our website, ellismartinreport.com. That's ellismartinreport.com. Ian Chalmers is the managing director of a company with significant assets of zirconium, rare earths, and rare metals, as well as gold and copper, in New South Wales, Australia. The company is called Alkane Resources. It trades in the U.S. on the OTCQX under the symbol ANLKY, and in Australia on the AX as ALK. Ian, welcome back to the program. According to what I'm seeing, you are in the process of attempting to raise $107 million in funds now. Would you mind explaining what you need the money for? It's actually broken up into three different components. Now, perhaps I should explain that first. For existing shareholders, it's on a one for ten basis. So if you own ten shares initially now, you'll get one new share and at a dollar ten. We've also done a placement of about 40 million shares, uh, which is at our capacity, about 15% of the issued capital you can place at any one time. So that's a 40 million placement. And because the demand was so strong, I mean, really we were very surprised just how strong that demand was. We've actually done another 30 million placement, but that's subject to shareholder approval. So that's something that now won't take place until about the, the 16th of April. So that raises us overall about $107 million. The key component of that, about $70 million is allocated to the development of our Tommingley Gold project. The project is ready to go, to ready to start construct, but we just need approval from the state government, but uh, we're hoping to get that in the next month. So with this funding in place, the project now basically proceeds to, to construction and then to development. About $20 million we've allocated to the Dubbo Zirconia project. That's our large Zirconium Niobium Rare Earth project. And not that I think we'll spend that in the next 12 months, but it's really to make sure that everything we need to do over the next 12 months gets us to a point where this time next year we're ready to go for that project. And really that means the final stages of the process development work, uh, putting a Rare Earth MOU in place for offtake, uh, getting all the fund financing ready for the project, getting all the environmentals approval. So there's a lot to do in this 12 months, but we by the end of March next year, we really want to be in a position where we can press the button to go. So that's the major application of those funds. Now, are you going to have to go back to the market for more money, let's say in a year, with respect to Dubbo? Yes, we think so. I mean, really it depends how we end up funding the project. And you know, we've said a few times now that we think there are a number of options to funding the project. I mean, we still are talking about a $900 million Australian dollar project. One of the options we've got is to do a small strategic sell-down on the project, maybe 10%. And we believe we could do that at multiples to the NPV value. So that's potential $250 million type capital raising out of that sell down and interestingly in the last two years what I'll loosely describe as government agencies and the, the most well known government agencies to us Japanese, Korean and European agencies and these governments have set out to secure supply of strategic metals. I think that the events that have taken place in China in the last few years have frightened 
many of them into the sense they've got to find non-Chinese supply. And these government agencies have been given the brief by their governments to go out and secure supplies for their country. And to do that, they're prepared to provide some loan funds, uh, project loan funds, at very, very interesting interest rates. So we can see another... 200, 250 million coming from that source, leaving us another 400 million to, to find. And we think that will just be broken up between normal project debt finance and the equity market. And again, our target has been to try and keep that equity component below $200 million. So we don't really want to go out to the market and really blow the capital of the company out. We want to try and keep the shareholding as tight as possible so that when we get into production on Dubbo in three years' time, that the the project then will generate very substantial returns and see that capital appreciation in the share price. So that's a long way of answering your question. Yes, we probably will have to go to the market, but only at that point where we have, we think, the bulk of the financing for the Dubbo Zirconia project in place. But you're having no trouble raising this amount of money in Australia for the projects you have at hand. I think for any junior mining company in the U.S., that's an astounding figure to try and raise it in the U.S. or Canada. But for you, it's necessary, and it's for your gold project, which should be generating about $30 million a year. That's right. Again, we did the road show back in the end of January, early February, into London, New York, and Toronto, and then we followed up here in Australia in the two big financial centres of, of Sydney and Melbourne. I came away from that really pleasantly surprised just how much interest there was. I expected the markets, certainly in London, and then maybe to a lesser extent in New York, to be still very wary, very concerned about the European debt crisis situation. But it was almost the opposite. Certainly in London, there was a remarkable buoyancy. Most of the funds thought that... uh, the market had turned, that said there was a lot of money around. So in fact, it was actually quite simple, quite easy for us to raise the money. And certainly in Australia, there was a big, strong interest in what we we're doing. And I think that was pleasing that we've got the message across. We've, you know, we really have got the message across of, to what Alcane's all about, where it's going to go over the next five years, the bread and butter business of the gold operation, and then the real big upside coming out of the Dubbo Zirconia project. It actually became quite easy to market it. And at one stage in the two-day raising program, we were looking at the placements. We probably had a two-to-one offering. So in other words, the placements were looking to raise about $70 million. We probably had an offer something like $140 million at that stage. And I think we could have got a lot more. Will any of these funds go into the Dubbo project from uh, Tomlingley, the gold project? Only in the sense of this first phase of getting us through this year. The actual operating cash flows coming out of Tomlingley, to a lesser extent, there will be cash flow coming out. Well, it will depend on where we are with Tommy. If Tommy hits its straps very quickly and generates cash flow quickly, certainly that will also save us from going back to the market. But we sort of see Tommingly more as providing us that cash flow, that accumulating funds that, again, stops us from going to the market in the future after Dubbo. You have many shareholders here in the U.S., of course. You trade on the OTCQX. Those folks get it as far as it being uh, relatively, it's not risk-free, but the amount of risk is, let's say, less than other junior companies in the rare earth, rare metal space that don't have three or four offtake agreements in the offing like you do. I think, again, that's where the message has got across in the last uh, six months at least, and that Alcane is a very advanced project. I mean, it's not something we've started in the last three or four years. We've been working on this project for 12 years or 13 years. We originally acquired it about 20 plus years ago. So it's it's been around and we've done all the hard work. You know, that's 
been really getting the process right, building a demonstration plant, getting product off that demonstration plant in enough quantities to be able to give to end use. Off lab scale tests, certainly you can get 10 grams, 100 grams of material, but you really have to be able to give these end users tens of kilos of material for them to process and to check. So the fact that we've been up, we've done that, we are at that last stage, we're leading up to sort of development. I think that does differentiate us quite considerably from a lot of the other companies in the business. One of the most interesting things about your company, the most compelling item about Alkane, and we've discussed this, is essentially, I'll just reduce it to this statement, you've become a lifeline for the economies of Japan and South Korea and many Western European countries. Yeah, that's an interesting way of putting it. I must admit I hadn't thought of that, but it, it certainly, I mean, we wouldn't be able to meet all the demand of those countries. But in some of the critical areas like the heavier earth, you know, even zirconium, we are, and we use the words, a strategic alternative option that we, you know, we certainly are a distinctive option from China and we believe we can supply into the market reasonably strong way for a long period of time. We often talk, you know, jokingly talk about the project having a 100-year life, but in reality, that's what it is. The resource is big enough to sustain that sort of operation. So that does give a strategic significance. That's 100 years. I mean, you can joke about it all you want, and you expect to be generating half a billion dollars a year. Don't you? That's right. The cash flow out of that should approach three hundred million a year. So it's a very good project, and like most analysis of mining projects, they tend to put a twenty-year financial model on it. Uh, that twenty-year financial model still generates uh, some very interesting numbers. You end up with a, a six billion dollar cash flow over that twenty-year period, a thirty percent return on investment. So it's a, it's a good project. It's a very robust project. You know, people often ask us what happens if the if the metal prices collapse, well, it would take a very significant fall in all the metal prices to get back to a point where we're saving just a break even. Uh, and that's, again, one of the advantages of the project is the distribution. I mean, we get revenue from the zirconium, from the niobium, from all the rare earths. It gives us a bit of flexibility to withstand market fluctuations, you know, as we've seen in the last uh, six months with the rare earth industry. There's been some you know, fairly major shifts in some of the rare earths, that really hasn't impacted on us. When you stand back and look at our economics, it really hasn't changed anything for us. The, the project is still a very viable and robust project. Well, it's not going to change your offtake at all. That's right. It's no impact at all. The offtake is still very important in a number of areas. I know this is probably a question I should ask you in six months or a year, but do you expect to pay dividends at some point? Yes, we do. We've publicly stated that that's our goal. A lot of mining companies, a lot of junior mining companies won't say that, but we certainly believe that's what we want to do. We think there'll be significant capital appreciation in the shares, but we also think that long-term we can become a good dividend player. That will come from multiple opportunities. It'll come building up from the gold, certainly from the rare metals and rare earths. And then some of the other exploration projects we've got have the ability over the next three or four years to progress into development projects as well. So we do see ourselves. And our major shareholders are there and are involved in Alcone because they see the revenue stream off dividends as very important. Well, Ian, it's always a pleasure to speak with you. Thanks for joining us today on the Ellis Martin Report. Uh, thanks, Ellis. Great to talk to you again. Alkane Resources trades on the OTCQX under the symbol ANLKY. That's ANLKY. I've been speaking with the managing director and president of Alkane Resources, Ian Chalmers. You can listen to the segment again on the podcast page of our website, ellismartinreport.com. Joining us now, veteran geologist and mining stock analyst Brent Cook. 
His website is called ExplorationInsights.com and offers the sophisticated speculator, independent and unbiased analysis of the junior mining and exploration market. Brent, welcome back to the program. Thank you. It's good to be on again. Now, you're headed down to Australia. What have you got going on down there? Well, I'm heading down there to visit a project that Eurasian Minerals has called Coonanbury. It's a new potential district in western New South Wales. They picked up a 100-kilometer trend in a zone that's never been explored, but there's been a lot of gold nuggets found out there. So they put together a geologic model and picture of what's going on. And if they're right, if they're successful, this isn't a one miner or one drill hole prospect play. This is a district. And I like district plays and that that's what a major is looking for, is a district, not just one single mine for the most part. It's well known that you like big projects. You don't really spend any time on anything small. Doesn't Eurasian have enough with everything they've got going on around the world? They just keep on going and growing in size, and you're excited about that as a shareholder, I guess. Well, that's their business model, and to generate these ideas, big picture ideas, and then bring in usually a major company to fund the exploration. You and I know how high risk that actually is, so it makes a lot of sense to bring somebody else in to spend the high risk and high dollar expenses exploring these things. And that's what they've done in Turkey, in Scandinavia, in the western U.S., and in Haiti. They've got major mining companies drilling and exploring their projects. And if they're successful, then we as shareholders stand to do quite well because these companies are looking for major deposits. They're not looking for small ones. And if they're not successful, again, we as shareholders, we don't really participate in how much it costs to determine that. So we keep our, if you will, percentage of the business, which is generating ideas, and we're not diluted at that level. We're diluted at the prospect level, which is much higher risk. So they've been real successful in doing that. And just recently, they bought a royalty, which is going to generate them about $7 million bucks a year. So now they're fully funded you know, for life if they want. Now, this company is a project generator, and they're never going to be involved in production or building any mills. They're a fairly large-scale exploration company, correct? That's right. Their expertise is minerals exploration. That's a completely different mindset and technical set or knowledge set than building a mine. Completely different. So these guys know where their expertise is. They stay there, and they're carried through to generally some sort of feasibility study, at which point they can raise the money and just contribute to keep their percentage of the deposit without having to actually build it. I mean, they let Newmont or Barrick build the mine. They must have a team of wonderful geologists around the globe. It's funny you should say that. Most of the guys they've got working around the world I've worked with in the past, and they are, you know, I've always considered them amongst the best in their field in whatever region they're at. So, yeah, it's interesting how Dave Cole has managed to put together people that I know that are, you know, top in their field. Is that the first thing you evaluate when you look at a company is who's on their team? It varies. That's certainly a, a big part of it. Share structure goes in there, how much cash they've got. For me, you know, as a geologist, it comes down to what's the property really about? What's the potential there? All too often, these junior companies are looking for a property or exploring a project that even if they're successful, the net present value of this thing isn't worth the risk. They're looking for things that are too small is what I'm saying. If a company's management team is not up to snuff and they have a great property and perhaps they're looking like they might fold, you still have your eye on that property, don't you? Oh, for sure. I mean, that happens a lot. I mean, a lot of companies uh, have good-looking projects and it's just, you know, they're unable to work it for whatever reason that is, and that eventually comes free again. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm watching for those. Are you one of the people that helps to restructure these deals when they fail? Not per se. I try and identify a project or a group, but I don't really get behind the restructuring and all. That frees you up to pretty much say whatever you want, whenever you want. Right, Brent? 
yeah, that's what I do in my letter. I, I say what I want, whenever I want. And, you know, I've made a few enemies and made some friends doing that. I guess it's fairly easy to make enemies in this business. Everyone is very sensitive with regard to their projects and their companies. I'm sure occasionally while you enjoy your work, at times it must be a little bit tenuous. Well, it is, but ultimately it's, you know, it comes down to the rocks. And either the deposit's there or the deposit's not there. Either it's worth something or it's not worth something. So geology is not a real exact science. It's sort of a a fuzzy science and that we're projecting a little bit of data on the surface to depth and things change at depth you know you don't know what's going on so there's a lot of room for a variety of opinions as well are you making money in this market uh not much <laughs> to be honest uh, it's been tough some of our stocks are done down a fair bit a lot of them are about even so we're doing okay i think we're doing better than the market average but not as good as i'd like but you, you really can't fight the market i mean the market's selling the good with the bad so we get hit well you've got to be accumulating where you can very very selectively i think this market gets worse over the year and i think we'll get a lot better bargains further down so the only thing i'm really accumulating is companies that where i can see the actual value on a net present value basis of a deposit and that deposit is being undervalued and seriously undervalued and i'm looking at high margin deposits i'm not interested in these marginal deposits where you get your you know, your leverage the gold or copper price because i think the leverage goes the other way this year you're never really a trader then i know some of the other analysts i speak with periodically they like volatility they're into it that's not you is it i can't do that as a newsletter writer i can't you know have my subscribers flipping in and out of stocks that quickly it's just it's just not fair i mean certainly i know a number of my subscribers do that and that's fine i just try and provide the information and they jump in and out when they like personally i can't be doing that in a letter it's just not fair it's going to be tough i mean there's so many new companies out there you know they've all issued their stock they've raised the money they're spending it they're going to be eating it over this coming uh, next six months a lot of them and it's going to be hard to get. We've still got all that paper to burn through that they raised about a year ago. I think it's going to be tough unless you've got a property or deposit that shows some real value. I'm getting a feeling that we're not going to see any kind of recovery in these junior stocks until about 2013. What are your thoughts? It's going to be tough. I mean, there's so many new companies out there. You know, they've all issued their stock. They've raised the money. They're spending it. They're going to be eating it over this coming uh, next six months, a lot of them. And it's going to be hard to get. We've still got all that paper to burn through that they raised about a year ago. I think it's going to be tough unless you've got a property or deposit that shows some real value. Well, that makes it risky for shareholders when a company has to burn off stock or burn off paper to cover their financings, etc. It does. You know, you're facing serious dilution. We're going to see a lot of private placements coming out at very low values, at very low share prices, and a lot lower than the last placement they did. This is also a fortuitous time for acquisitions, potentially. Yeah, precisely. The major mining companies, even at, call it 1,500 gold and 350 copper, by and large, they're making decent money, and that cash flow is accumulating, and they do need to replace what they're mining. So you're right, in, in the sense that if you own a company that's got something of value, and you know what that value is worth, and you can buy it for less than that, you stand a good chance of getting taken over by another company. That's the sweet spot in this, and that's where the money's going to be made this year, but you better know what you own. How do you keep track of all these possible opportunities, Brent? <laughs> it's tough. I mean, that's what I do all day, every day, is look at news releases, companies. And, you know, over the past, since I let's see, I started working at Rick Rule in 97, I've gotten to know a lot of the companies, the people, the projects. So I've got a good handle on what's going on, but certainly I can't even cover them all. I mean, things go by me that I just completely miss. I just can't follow everything. Tell us about Exploration Insights. An Exploration Insights is an investment letter focused on the junior mining sector, and it's basically about what I'm doing with my money in the sector. 
you know, what I'm buying, why I'm buying it, what do I expect, or why I'm selling. It comes out more or less once every week unless I'm on the road. And we cover, in addition to companies, I like to talk a bit about geology or mineralization or just provide some information that helps subscribers evaluate their own companies or things that they're looking at that I'm not covering. Now, you're going to be down in Australia looking in on a Eurasian project. Will you be checking in on anything else while you're there? I'll be jumping across to New Zealand to look at another company we own called Glass Earth. They've got what looks like a discovery on the North Island next to Newmont's 10 million ounce Samartha mine. This is a joint venture with Newmont. I'll be visiting those two projects mainly and, and talking with some junior companies down there as well. Brent, thanks so much for visiting with me. Thank you. Anytime, else. I've been talking with geologist and newsletter writer Brent Cook. The website is explorationinsights.com. Join us next time for the Ellis Martin Report. Remember, this is actually one of those paid programs where companies and individuals pay us to let you hear all about themselves. Remember, invest at your own risk. Get more of these powerful programs free on the web at ellismartinreport.com. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.